you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Esther chapter 6. Esther chapter 6, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 14. The title of this sermon is Sleepless in Susa. Esther 6, 1 through 14. In her commentary on the book of Esther, Karen Jobes, referring to chapter 6, which we're in this morning, says that this is arguably the most ironically comic scene in the entire Bible. Uh, I believe she's right. What unfolds in this chapter is hilarious. Yet, at the same time, it's meant to teach us serious truth about who God is. And here are some truths that... I want you to look for as we walk through this text together. Number one, look for God's sovereign, invisible hand. Two, look for a great reversal. And third, look uh, look for God's justice through vindication. So with that in mind, let's take a moment to remember exactly what's happening leading up to this particular night in our text. Almost A decade before chapter 6, King Ahasuerus decided to throw a massive party to show off all of his power and all of his stuff. After six whole months of partying and drinking, he summons his wife, Queen Vashti, to be paraded in front of his drunk friends. She refuses, and the king banishes her forever. He goes away to war gets smashed by Greece, then comes home and feels sorry for himself. After some horrible counsel, he decides to round up all of the young, beautiful virgins in the kingdom to find himself a new queen. One of the young girls who gets swept up into this horrendous contest is named Esther. She's a Jew living in Susa. She wins the contest and becomes queen. But this whole ordeal is a shameful and degrading mess. After this, Esther's cousin, Mordecai, who had adopted her, he discovers an assassination plot on the king. He relays the information, the king's life is saved. But nothing is ever done to show gratitude. It's just recorded in a book somewhere. Soon after this, this man named Haman is elevated to the second highest political position in the world. There's a command given that everyone should bow to this guy to show him respect. Mordecai the Jew refuses to do it. We found out that Haman was a descendant of the Agagites and that Mordecai was a descendant of Saul, the first Jewish king. These two groups of people have been sworn enemies forever. So a conflict was brewing. Sure enough, Haman manipulated the king into issuing an edict, not only that Mordecai be killed, but all of God's people in the entire kingdom. They rolled some dice, which God controlled as well, and they set the genocide date for 12 months from that day. God's people wept, fasted, and prayed. 
Mordecai urged Esther to go to the king at risk of her life to plead on behalf of God's people. After hesitating, she decided to identify with God's people, an identity which she'd been hiding all along by command of Mordecai. Last week, in chapter 5, we saw Esther enter the throne room uninvited. She was shown mercy and grace through the extended golden scepter. She was a display of God's wisdom and patiently lured in the king to answer her request favorably. There was only one problem. Haman, again, not surprisingly, had a conflict with Mordecai, who still wouldn't fall down before him. He goes home and gets some more bad advice from his wife and friends. They tell him to have Mordecai killed on a 75-foot wooden stake the next morning before Esther's party that he's invited to. He decides this is a great idea, and he has the gallows built. So, whose plan will reach the king first? Esther's or or Haman's? Remember that neither Esther nor Mordecai are aware of this imminent threat to Mordecai's life at this point. They've both gone to sleep, feeling great about the plan that's in play. And that brings us to chapter 6. Look with me at the starting starting point in verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. So... The king can't sleep. Any of you been there? I have, for various reasons. But what's interesting here is that the author doesn't really tell us why the king couldn't sleep. In the book of Daniel, we read this about the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. It says, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. So God keeps this king in Daniel up with dreams. A couple chapters later in Daniel, we read this about another pagan king, Darius. Daniel 6, verse 18. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. This king... In Daniel 6, Darius can't sleep because he's awaiting the fate of Daniel in the lion's den. But here, in Esther, we're simply not told. Maybe it was because of the construction crew building Haman's gallows. That'd be ironic. But we're not told. And I think that's intentional. Over and over and over again in this book, We've seen that God is not explicitly mentioned by name. And yet, he's everywhere. His fingerprints are on every coincidence of every page. Here again, the author's not giving giving us an explicit reason for the king's insomnia. It's almost as if he's winking at us and saying, watch this. Here comes another coincidence. Hasuerus can't sleep on the night before of Mordecai's impending demise. What does he decide to do? He has 
a ton of things that he could do to entertain himself. He has food. He has women. But what does he do? He asks for the book of memorable deeds to be pulled off the shelf. Remember, he can't lay on the couch and channel surf his way to sleep. So he has this book pulled and read to him. Job's notes that the book of Chronicles was the official record of the Persian kings, in which every official transaction of the court was recorded. It's the equivalent of having the county's tax records read to you. Boring! Maybe this was a precursor to taking melatonin. It'd be sure to put you right to sleep. Then look at verse 2. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who had guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. What a coincidence. On, on all the nights that the king could have had insomnia, it was this night. And on all of the volumes that they could have pulled off the shelf, they just happened to pull this one. And it just so happened to be the one with Mordecai's good deed in it. Verse 3. And the king said, Hmm, what, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Now this is where it gets wild. I've mentioned this before, but... Persian kings were known for rewarding loyalty very generously. Herodotus, the ancient historian, notes two such instances. One commentator writes, in one instance, Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, granted land to two ship's captains who had assisted in a battle against the Greeks and recorded one of them in the list of the king's benefactors. In another incident, a man was made governor of Cilicia for saving the life of Xerxes' brother. Land and high governorships. If you help a Persian king, you get hooked up every time. Remember what Mordecai got. Nothing. All he got was his name written in a dumb book. But here, by sheer coincidence... That book gets opened on this night. And the king discovers that nothing's been done for old Mordecai. Now the king's wide awake. The melatonin didn't work. It had exactly the opposite effect. Understand this. Persian kings, or any kings for that matter, they wanted to make sure that loyalty was publicly rewarded and that disloyalty was publicly punished. They wanted to discourage opposition and encourage loyalty. Do you see why the king's ears perk up here? He's saying, what? That guy saved my life five years ago, and nothing was done for him? Friends, do you see why having the big picture in mind is so important for us as believers? The Christian life is a marathon and not a sprint. You might have something happen in your life, and you might not understand why God did or didn't do this or that. 
I'm sure Mordecai had that thought when he did the right thing and saved the king's life. God, where, where are you on this one? I, I did the right thing and nothing happened. Are you asleep at the wheel up there? Where are you? It'd be easy for Mordecai to conclude that God's not real, or at best, that God doesn't care about him. But is that true? No, it's not. God knew exactly what he was doing here. He was intentionally delaying Mordecai's reward for such a time as this. The king is now panicked that nothing's been done for this guy. What in the world should he do? Verse 4. And the king said, Who is in the court? Have you noticed the pattern here? The king can't make his own decisions, can he? Each time a decision needs to be made, he's asking others to decide for him. He needs someone else to tell him what to do. Who's in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Verse 5. And the king's young men told him, Haman is, is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. You can't make this stuff up. The king needs someone to advise him on how to honor Mordecai. And he's about to ask Haman, who's upset because Mordecai won't honor him. Awkward. So, Haman's there to get permission for Mordecai to be hanged. But before he can get his request out of his mouth, look at verse 6. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? This is epic. First, the king doesn't use Mordecai's name. He speaks in generalities. It's a general policy question. Haman doesn't know who the king's talking about. But he fills in the blank with his own name. Look at this. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Who would the king delight to honor more than me? Do you see that? Well, we learned last week that Haman's idol was what? Pride. And being seen to be significant. That idol has gripped his heart. This is going to be his moment. He's dreamed of this question being asked by the king for years. This is the, what is your request? It shall be given you up to half my kingdom moment for him. And unlike Esther, there's no pause. He jumps right in and answers the question. There's no, if it pleased the king, or if I found favor in the king's sight. He's salivating to answer this question. He's probably rehearsed it in front of a mirror for years. Look at verses 7 through 9. Just quick. And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and let the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on, on the horse, through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, 
Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Are any of us surprised at Haman's answer here? He doesn't ask for more power. He doesn't ask for more money. He asks for public recognition. But we may not completely understand the gravity of this request. What he's asking for is actually a big deal. Christopher Ashe writes, To wear the king's robe, ride the king's horse, and be led in honor publicly around the city streets comes very close to claiming the throne. In fact, that's exactly what Jonathan, King Saul's son, did with David in 1 Samuel 18, 1-5. And he did that to display that David was God's real anointed king. Today, it'd be like dressing up like the President of the United States, standing behind the seal, and then taking a very public ride on Air Force One, all while having hail to the chief blared upon your journey. That's what's going on. That's what he's asking for. Haman's pride is at its peak in this request. Ash again notes that he considers equality with the king something to be grasped. Little does he know, his whole world's about to be turned upside down. He's about to have the carpet yanked out from under him. Proverbs 16, verse 18, says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Haman is exhibit A. Look at verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said. And do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Poetic justice, right? This is hilarious. If you don't think God has a sense of humor, you're not reading your Bible very well. God ordained all of this. Think about it. He could have just killed Haman in his sleep. He could have saved his people in a thousand different ways. But he chose to do it this way. Haman will be humiliated, and Mordecai will be honored. Can you imagine the look on Haman's face, or the pit in his stomach at this moment? Can you imagine the feeling of having to walk out to Mordecai at the gate, robe and crown in hand, horse bridled? Verse 11. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Isn't God great? Look at, look at what God's word says in James 4, verses 6 through 10. James 4, 6 through 10. It says, But he, meaning God, he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. In verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's exactly what's happening here in Esther 6. The, the proud Haman 
is opposed by God and humiliated. The humble Mordecai is graciously exalted. Friends, I hope you see here in Esther 6 that you don't need to toot your own horn. God will do it for you. Don't be an Ahasuerus or a Haman feeling the need to exalt yourself. Exalt God. Trust him to be good and to do good. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And look at what happens after Mordecai's glorious parade. I love this. Verse 12. He gets paraded around the streets in the robe and the crown with the horse and the town crier. Verse 12, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. Mordecai just goes on about his business, clocks back in at city hall. He doesn't even seem phased by all of this. He doesn't bask in his own glory. Or, like Haman, go home to his buddies and tell them how great he is and what the king did for him. He doesn't tweet photos of himself on Air Force One. He humbly goes back to work. Haman, on the other hand, hurries to his house, mourning and with his head covered. Do you see the reversal here? In chapter 4, Haman was exalted... And Mordecai is mourning, wearing sackcloth and ashes. Here, Mordecai is exalted, wearing royal robes. Haman is mourning. God has taken things and flipped them upside down. And do you remember last time Haman left the palace to go home? He gathered his friends and his wife. They gave him some bad advice. Look at verse 13. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Again, the irony here is thick. This is where this whole thing started, right? Haman was demanding that Mordecai bow before him. And now, Haman will fall before Mordecai. Only God can do something like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29 says this. It says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And I just want to point out this phrase here in Esther 6. They say, Mordecai of the Jewish people, in verse 13. Mordecai of the Jewish people. Translated literally, it reads, from the seed of the Jews. That word seed couldn't be any more important. Seed, zera, offspring. It's sort of a code word throughout all the Old Testament. Remember Genesis 3.15. That's the, the, the thread which we've been following all through Esther. 
Genesis 3.15, God says this to Satan there after the fall in the garden. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Offspring, same word. The promise is that the seed of Eve will crush the seed of Satan. Isn't that what's happening in Esther 6? The seed of Eve is being exalted, and the seed of Satan is about to be crushed. Genesis 3.15. How about Genesis 12, 1-3? God makes a promise to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Then down in verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Any guess what that word translated offspring is? Seed. Zerah. What about Genesis 13, verses 14 through 16. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Offspring, seed. God has made specific promises concerning the seed of Eve and the seed of Abraham. He's keeping these promises in the book of Esther. He's a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God 100% of the time. Haman's wife and his friends seem to now be aware of this. Look at exactly what they say. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people or of the Jewish seed, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. If only they'd given him that advice yesterday, huh? How did they know this? Well, throughout biblical history, pagans seemed to be aware of Israel's God and what he was capable of. I think of Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. These are the words of Rahab, who's a Canaanite prostitute. Joshua 2, 9 through 11. She says this. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. God's fame wasn't confined in a small box. He was known everywhere. 
Haman's wife and friends seemed to know the truth of Genesis 12:3, where God said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors, I will curse. Haman had gone from on top of the world to rock bottom to eventually dead within 24 hours. He was under God's curse for opposing the seed. Now, while this chapter of Esther has been comical and ironic up to this point, I ask this question in all seriousness. Is it possible? Is it possible that you, along with Haman, are under God's curse? Galatians 3, verse 10 says this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. How many of you have abided by all things written in God's law? Yeah, me neither. That's bad news, because that's true of all of us. We're all, uh, along with Haman, under God's curse. But here's the good news. Here's the gospel. Galatians 3, verses 13 through 16. You ready for this? Galatians 3, 13 through 16. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Unreal, right? All of the promises concerning seed or offspring in the Old Testament were about Jesus. And it's only through him that we can be blessed and saved from the curse. He lived a perfect life, abided by all things written in God's law. He was the one true man of blessing. He was hanged on a tree, crucified on the cross. He was also the man of cursing. And he did all of that as our representative. He fulfilled God's perfect standard for you. He absorbed the curse, the, the full amount of God's wrath for you. And it gets even better. He rose from the grave, defeating death, and was exalted to the right hand of God for you. And if you repent and believe, all of this is applied to you by the Holy Spirit. It's yours in Christ. Do you understand that? The, the only way to be saved from the just wrath of God is to identify with his seed, Jesus Christ. It's only through him that you can be saved. Like Haman with Mordecai, you will not overcome him, but 
will surely fall before him. In other words, you'll either bow now willingly or later unwillingly. And I just want to take this opportunity to point out the urgency here. Haman, if you think about it, Haman had no clue that within 24 hours he'd go from the top of the mountain to dead. None of us do either. No one knows the hour of their demise. So don't put off the decision to follow Christ until later. Like Haman, you might not have tomorrow. Bow before Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Submit to him. Humble yourself before him. He will exalt you. Now in closing, I want to point to two final truths. Number one, do you see how God sovereignly works in seemingly insignificant ways? Without going into great detail here, you should know that the book of Esther is written as what, what's called a chiasm. I remember talking about this in several places in the book of Mark. Do you guys remember that? Think of a chiasm as a sandwich. So bread, bread, cheese, cheese, meat in the middle. Biblical authors do this kind of thing to kind of highlight the most important thing in the middle of their book, the meat. If you were to guess where the meat is in Esther, where would you guess? I would guess either Esther 4 or 5. Esther's decision to identify with God's people or her actual entrance into the king's chamber. I'd be wrong. The middle of the chiasm is right here in the middle of Esther 6, or at the beginning of Esther 6. Neither Esther nor Mordecai are really present in this chapter, other than verse 14. And I believe that's the point. We're meant to focus in as the center hinge point of this entire book, not on Esther and not on Mordecai, but on God. Job's once again nails it when she writes this. She says, The pivot point in Esther is not located at the climax of the narrative. Instead, the pivot point is the seemingly insignificant event recorded in Esther 6.1, when the king had a sleepless night. As insignificant as this ordinary event may appear, it is with this event that the tables begin to turn and the reversals begin to occur. By making the pivot point an insignificant event rather than the point of highest dramatic tension, the author is taking the focus away from human action. That's right. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Job's goes on to write, what a great God we serve. She says, any deity worth his salt can do a miracle now and then. Our God is so great, so powerful, that he can work without miracles through the ordinary events of billions of human lives through millennia of time to accomplish his eternal purposes and ancient promises. God delivered an entire race of people in Persia because the king had a sleepless night because a man would not bow to his superior, because a woman found herself taken to the bedroom of a ruthless man for a night of pleasure. 
How inscrutable are the ways of the Lord? Do you see that? God sovereignly uses what seem to be the most insignificant moments to bring about his ultimate purposes. That's often true of our lives. And it's true in salvation history. Consider the birth of a Jewish baby born in a stable in Bethlehem, surrounded by smelly shepherds and barn animals. An insignificant moment that changed the course of history. The Word became flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, was born. God is sovereignly working in seemingly insignificant ways. Second and finally, I believe that in this text, we're meant to see the man whom God delights to honor. No, not Mordecai, but Christ. In this story, Mordecai is meant to point us to Christ. Consider the comparison and the contrast here. Mordecai was clothed in royal robes, rode through the streets on a war horse, was given a royal crown, and was honored. Jesus, on the other hand, entered Jerusalem on a donkey, not a war horse. And Matthew 27, 27 through 31 says this. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. Jesus was and is the ultimate man whom God delights to honor. And what I want us to see is that he did that through humbling himself. I want to read just a little bit of the text that we read earlier for our scripture reading. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's as low as you can go. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Do you see that? Through Mordecai's humble exaltation and vindication, we're meant to see Christ, who, unlike Haman, didn't grasp for greatness. Jesus humbled himself as low as you can go, death on a cross. And God exalted him as high as you can go, the name that is above every name, every knee bowing, every tongue confessing that he's Lord. 
through Jesus' resurrection from the dead and through his ascension to the right hand of the Father, Jesus was and is fully vindicated before all people. And so the question is, will you humbly follow in his steps? Let's pray.